welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And we have an exciting episode this week because we are not talking about an Agatha Christie. We are doing something that we increasingly love. We are talking to novelists who are writing incredible mystery novels in 2021 that we can read and talk to in this day because, you know, much to our chagrin, we can't talk to Dame Agatha because you know, she passed away before we were born. We got as close as we could with Matthew Pritchard, but that's the proverbial no cigar. And it's really fun to be able to speak with mystery novelists and authors who share our enthusiasm for Christie. Because if you're writing a mystery, if you have published a mystery, chances are you're a Christie fan, even if she's not a direct inspiration. And I'd say that that actually is a fairly good characterization of the subject of our interview today, who would be Alexandra Andrews. And what did she write, Catherine? Who's Ma Dixon, which I know a lot of you have read. And so we're very excited about that. Uh, She was a delightful interview. And so we're very excited to be able to post this. So let's just get right to it. We are uh, so thrilled to be speaking with Alexandra Andrews, the debut author of a wicked and witty suspense novel that came out in March of this year, drawing comparisons to Patricia Highsmith, which is some of the highest praise we can imagine. Uh, The novel is called Who is Maude Dixon? And there's already a film in the works, which we'll be touching on a little later, but let's focus on the text because that's what we do. Uh, And as always, our aim is not to spoil anything in this conversation for those of you who haven't read the book yet, which you all absolutely should do. But very broadly, the story follows a 20-something assistant, Florence, who works at a small publishing house in New York and who very much wants to become a famous writer. And after she gets fired for some rather questionable behavior, she agrees to become the assistant to a famous and reclusive writer named Helen, who the world knows as the pseudonymous and eponymous Maud Dixon. And from there, the twists and turns really start flying as Florence and Helen go on a trip to Morocco for what Helen tells Florence is research on her next book. And let's just say that a lot goes down in Morocco. Uh, The story exploring themes of impersonation and identity, as so many of the best thrillers do. And the book that people seem to be comparing it to is Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley. So I suppose we should start out by asking, Ali, whether you are in fact a fan of Highsmith and what you make of all the references that critics and readers have been making to Ripley. I'm such a fan of Highsmith. I I doubt that's surprising. (laughs) And I'm thrilled that other people are making the comparison. That's high flattery in my book. Yeah, I was actually rereading The Talented Mr. Ripley a couple years ago. I have a terrible, terrible memory, which is sort of a boon because I can reread all my books over and over again. And it's like the first time over time. Um, I was rereading The Talented Mr. Ripley. And it was right around the time when Elena Ferrante's books were coming out, um, Mm -hmm. her Neapolitan novels. And, you know, she's, of course, a pseudonymous writer, and people were very obsessed with who she was. And it was really those two things coming together, the talented Mr. Ripley, this idea of playing with identity, and Elena Ferrante, the very famous pseudonymous writer. The two of them just sort of came together and sparked the idea of Ramon. I like that. I mean, I have always had, like, a slight problem because, you know, people 
have kind of figured out some parts of who Elena Ferrante is now. And it's sort of one of those annoying things where it's like, leave her alone. Like, like the lady wanting it to be left alone. <laughs> Your author in the book has a kind of a reason for remaining anonymous. <laughs> yes. But I think that there's been a resurgence in recent years of Highsmith. And I think it's really, really nice to have people who are looking back at her because it's not that it ever fell out of fashion, but I think that a lot of people just don't read it in the same way. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of we've gotten to this point where it's obviously it's a good time to be reading thrillers and a good time to be writing thrillers. They're having such a a moment right now, but I think there is a trend for thrillers these days to just, and I, I do this too, to just pile on the action and the twists and one after another and everything gets very bombastic. But I think there's something to be said about these mid-century writers like Patricia Highsmith or Graham Greene or Eric Ambler where it was oh my god eric ambler you know, you're I mentioning love. eric ambler <laughs> nobody mentions eric ambler no this is this is that is oh my gosh i, I have love. heard Catherine go on and on about eric ambler many He's many so times good. i know <laughs> I think that's so true about Highsmith. And it's really funny. I happen to have just read, I'm curious if you read it, given you know that you wrote a very Highsmithian book, her book on writing. I have read it. It's great advice. It's all great advice. It's really great advice. And she really does talk about that. And it's so interesting because it's also called plotting and writing. Yes. <laughs> and it's and she really gets, you know, specific about how she plots her books. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting because somehow she manages to be that writer who has lots of plot, but the books are never plotty. Like she, mm-hmm. it's, it's like she's having her cake and eating it too, because so much, ha- you know, when you're reading Talented Mr. Ripley and you have to actually describe what happens, it is not just, you know, two people sit in a room and talk to each other, a sort of a book, obviously, but it is also so rich in character. And mm-hmm. I, it's, it's one of those books I, fa- I found it, useful but also frustrating because I was like really at the end of the day you just have to be brilliant <laughs> like it makes it sound so easy you know she's like just have a brilliant idea and then add this twist and you know add a little bit more to here and I then- mean stranger <laughs> on a train will anyone ever come up with a better plot than that no. <laughs> no no but it also gives such a good sense of who she is she's such an odd person in the best mm-hmm. of ways and that really comes through in that book where you're just like wow I wish I could have met you <laughs> oh. Well, she apparently, have you heard this one, carried a bag of lettuce. I mean, a head of lettuce in her purse when she went out to dinner to, so her snails could feast on it. <laughs> like she went to a party. Yeah, she went to parties yeah. with like a bag of lettuce. A bag of snails and lettuce, yeah. Yeah, because she raised snails and she, like, they were her pets, right? And she liked animals a lot more than people and, yeah, you know, total misanthropy. Yeah. But. It's funny, the the whole idea, I think, of an author trying to keep her identity secret, and I'm with you guys, too, on Elena Fronte. I actually, out of principle, never clicked on any of those yeah, articles. I won't read them. Same. Yeah, I have no idea who she is. I don't care. I'm so uh, respectful. Uh, uh, I, wait, wait, I, I, I did click. Of course you did, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine is the one who reads mysteries, by the way, and figures it out annoyingly quickly and has to have... Share it. (laughs) 
the very uh, you're a very active uh, reader, so it doesn't surprise me that you would kind of have to. I don't share it. People try to be mad at me about being a spoiler, and I'm just like, no, I just like I like just figure it out immediately. Like that's just like what that's how I read. So you know, it's not it's not like I'm doing it deliberately, but also at the same time, I'm the person who if somebody wants to spoil a TV show for me, I do not care whatsoever. So I care about the process. <laughs> well, I definitely got, you know, that in Maud Dixon, I think there's a whole notion of a reading public, you know, not really wanting to accept the distance that she's trying to impose between herself and her readers. And I think that, you know, these days there is this kind of notion that a central part of promoting a book is letting your readers get to know you personally in a way that it never really was before social media mm-hmm. dominated the way that we communicate. It's relevant to your book. And I also just happened to, to notice as we were doing research for this very interview that you don't have, you yourself don't have a huge online presence. And I'm curious what your stance is as a reader and now an author on the ways that authors should be expected to interact with their reading public or fans. I don't think there should be any expectation of anyone ever, basically, (laughs) about anything. But I mean, yeah, it's true. I'd say probably most book contracts now, you have to, you know, agree to do a certain amount of promotion and social media, uh, which is not actually why I do it. I don't really have a stance per se. I just, gosh, I mean, I have an Instagram account. Mm -hmm. What else would I do? Facebook, Twitter? No, I don't really. I just... Twitter's the yeah. big one. I feel like writers I, I are, you know. Twitter lurker. I only follow comedians because that's all I want from it. <laughs> um, if I have something to say, I guess I'll just put it in a book or I'll tell my husband. <laughs> I mean, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a mess on social media. It just doesn't really work for me. And it's, yeah. it's just interesting that that's that, you know, that I think, I think there is these days sort of a general expectations, not among all publishers or anything like that, but that, you know, as a writer, you're going to put yourself out there and generate even, you know, some kind of false intimacy on the, on a lot of those platforms. And I think it's often hard, you know, it's the exact thing that writers aren't necessarily good at. So it's, um, yeah. Although real- I think there are some authors who really kind of feed off of it. You know, it's like, it's a very lonely job and there's sort of nothing motivating you except yourself. I can see how you might, it might be a boon to think that there are these people awaiting your book and they're telling you how much they're, I don't know. I could see how, yeah, I always see every side of everything. I'm terrible <laughs> in arguments. Like a good writer should, right? <laughs> No, and I mean, there's like also like a certain level of book Twitter that is so hard. I mean, it's so constant and hard. And I just feel for everybody who has to do it because it's not that it probably doesn't have its rewards, but it's just constant. Yeah. I mean, that's the word for it. And it just, it takes up a lot of mental space and just time. Yeah. It's relentless psychic energy. I feel like it completes my my psychic energy. So I'm I'm just curious if there are any other writers beyond Highsmith, obviously, she's the obvious one, who influenced you either directly or indirectly in the writing of this book. And this is also where if you know you should feel free to tell us about any favorite authors of yours while you were growing up. What what he's actually saying is you should feel free to tell us if you read Agatha Christie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I was, <laughs> was that a leading question? Oh my God. I was obsessed with Agatha Christie. I really was. I mean, there were some of the first books I like started reading on my own. And I think, you know, I bet everybody's grandmother had a copy of an Agatha Christie hidden somewhere. Or their mom. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I loved the ones that took place in very exotic settings. It's such a satisfying way to spend a few days. It really is. Um, and, and, you know, her plots were so nice and neat and they always satisfied in a great way. Were you a big Nancy Drew fan? Hi, I've never read a Nancy Drew book. <laughs> You've never read a Nancy Drew? No. Oh my gosh. I, a lot of, I don't know what was wrong in my childhood. I never saw The Little Mermaid. I never saw Dumbo. I missed out on a lot. You went oh straight my. to Eric Ambler, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, I was a dark child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just straight up John le Carre, like yeah. straight up spy thriller is at like age nine. Day one, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, we love that. What else did you read though growing up? Like we love this question, obviously, because we're massive readers. I started reading classics, I think, very early. I remember picking up Anna Karenina way too early, but just oh, loving wow. it. And um you're do you know why Kemper and I are friends? Why? Anna Karenina. Really? <laughs> yeah. How did you guys how did that happen? Yeah, I'm curious we, as to this uh, this story too because I don't totally know it. <laughs> no, no, we um we when Kemper first started dating his partner, we got into an argument about Anna Karenina. I knew his partner first, and we got into an argument about who the protagonist of Anna Karenina is. And obviously, the protagonist of Anna Karenina is Levin. <laughs> and so Kemper and I both said it at exactly the same time across the table and I was like oh now I'm in love with Kemper and like <laughs> like we are just going to be best friends forever <laughs> I never I totally remember that conversation you're ab- that's absolutely how I remember it too but I did not know that that was the moment for yeah that was that was the moment that was the true love moment of um, <laughs> bringing people together who knew <laughs> yeah so Anna Karenina too young is something I completely understand you really only you you can really only appreciate the farm bits later, though. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to also talk a little bit about the other reference point that I feel like a lot of people make when discussing your book, which is the film All About Eve. And this also gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit about All About Eve, and I will never pass up an opportunity <laughs> to talk about that film. I actually don't think it's the best reference, though, for your book. And to be clear, I love All About Eve and I love your book, but I kind of feel like a lot of people, you know, it's, it's to say that your book is the talented Mr. Ripley meets All About Eve is sort of a more artful way of saying it's like the talented Mr. Ripley, but with ladies instead of dudes, <laughs> I think is why people say that. And I actually did a little bit of internet sleuthing and I believe that you didn't actually watch All About Eve until after you wrote this book, right? True. Yeah. People kept making the comparison. So I thought, well. You're like, I gotta, I gotta watch this, this movie. And I was trying to think about exactly why the reference doesn't work for me. And I think, first of all, there's the fact that All About Eve is very much from the older, more experienced person's point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very much Betty Davis's movie, whereas your book is very much from the younger, more inexperienced person's point of view. That would be Florence's. But I also think to a certain extent that what a lot of people cherish about All About Eve, or and it's certainly what I cherish about it, is that it, it has a lot of brash, straightforward language 
that mm-hmm. is like overly employed. I mean, there's a reason why it's one of the best Betty Davis vehicles in existence. And I think that um, one of the things you do so well in your book is kind of the opposite. You know, your book features a lot of people who communicate with each other in sort of disingenuous or oblique, you could even say coded ways. People are mm-hmm. often saying what they what they don't mean. And I'm wondering if you think that's fair, if I'm, if I'm sort of parsing that in a way that feels valid to you as the writer of this book. No, yeah, I think I, I mean, I take that as a, as a compliment. I find female relationships, particularly ones that um, deal with sort of a power dynamic, very fascinating in part because so much of it, I think, comes down to language. You know, women tend not to, well, obviously not to physically fight, but um, also I think a lot of women, and I'm being totally reductive here. I understand that. (laughs) You know, I'm just going to talk about me so I don't have to generalize. I really hate confrontation. I hate being outright aggressive, but I still have all these emotions like envy and anger and ambition. And I find that they come out in this very like, kind of like squeezed, crooked way. And so much of it comes down to language, I think. You know, I remember being a teenager and just like when you're growing up, I went to an all-girls school for a while. You learn to sort of fight these battles in a very linguistic way. You know, you you master the art of the cutting barb that you can sort of step back from or be like, no, I was only kidding. You know, it's just, it's all, it's all very layered and interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, as the other woman in this conversation, I certainly understand. And, you know, there is a way that I've always said that for me, the most vicious workplace relationships I've ever had have been with women. They have not been with men to the point sometimes where it is totally frightening. So when I was reading your book, I recognize that fundamentally that you can have this completely frightening two-faced relationship with a woman in the workplace. And sometimes I feel like there's not enough credit given to that. I mean, I'm like not undermining me too or anything, but I'm just saying that sometimes the scariest ones are the ones that are duplicitous. Or where the other person isn't even being duplicitous. When you have a boss who, on the one hand, is an ambitious, powerful woman, you're very drawn to that. But you can also be sort of scared of that and scared of her power over you. And so I think you can be both. It's an ambivalent relationship. It's interesting because I was thinking a lot about this. I was trying to think of the uh, Christie book that reminded me the most of yours. And I landed on one that I think really works, which would be after the funeral. Because without getting too specific, you know, so as not to spoil either book, I think that um, after the funeral also has an impersonation at its core. And it considers really centrally this intimate relationship between two women who occupy very different rungs on the social ladder of the society they live in. There is really a a power differential there. And um, that difference is a definite source of, of conflict. So I think it's really interesting, actually, what I would say to listeners is you should read this book. You should read Who is Maud Dixon? And if you haven't yet read After the Funeral, read that too, because it's really fascinating to see how very differently I think you can handle a similar subject because it could not be more different the way that Christy does it in her whodunit-ish way. But there's a real power 
to that underlying relationship in that book, which is why I think it actually is one of the most unsung and best Christie's actually. And I think you're both exploring a lot of similar things, which is why, you know, there's just like a lot, a lot to chew on in both books as to that subject. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. You know, we've talked before about how lovers of puzzles and puzzle mysteries tend to love Best Fiends, since each level within the game consists of a different puzzle. We have indeed, Kemper. But it strikes me that there's something else Best Fiends, and Christy specifically, have in common. Oh my gosh, what would that be, Kemper? Abundance. Our very podcast is built on the principle that there is so much Christy out there, we could talk about it intelligently, or quasi-intelligently, at any rate, for years, and still have more to cover. And we are living that principle every day. And the same goes with Best Fiends, because no matter how many levels you've completed, there are always more waiting for you. I think that's a joyous thing. Wouldn't you agree, Catherine? Yeah, I completely agree with you. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. I wanted to ask you about one specific passage also. There's actually, this doesn't always happen when I'm reading a book, but this really did happen to me after I read your book. There was one passage that stuck with me a long time after I finished it. And so I just wanted to ask you about it. Just to set the stage, this is later on in the book and we're in Morocco at this point. Florence has done something or rather allowed people to believe something that um, represents an enormous change in her life. So it's kind of like a, a before and after moment that she's now on the other side of. And here's what you write. She didn't have to try so hard to change anymore. Change? What a hoax. Nobody changes. They spend years tweaking their habits, taking small incremental steps in the hopes of altering the course of their lives. And it never works. No. You just have to know when to cut your losses. Um, I found this so devastating because I think it is 100% true. And I hate it that it's true because uh-huh. it's really depressing because I'm constantly trying to change myself. And it's so hard. Like It's such an uphill battle. And I think it's almost like in some ways the big lie that all literature is built on, right? Where it's like your protagonist is a different person from point A to point B at the end of the book because we want to believe that it's true. And it made me think about how, you know, I think in a way the real wish fulfillment of a thriller doesn't really have to do with the travel or the disguises or any of the adventure hijinks, but it's just this idea that in a suspense thriller or dare I say a whodunit, such as a Christie, Crazy things happen. Murder happens. Life-changing, you know, events that will change your life happen. And they allow people to achieve this real and drastic change that eludes us so often in real life. I feel like that's exactly what's happening in this, in this moment. And even though it gets dark, it gets crazy, there's a real wish fulfillment in that. I'm wondering if you would agree with that proposition. Yeah, I mean, there's something so compelling about a radical reinvention. Uh, you know, it's like the makeover montage in the movie, but <laughs> it's just so easy. Like you, I am someone who has spent a lot of time trying to change myself. I'm trying to think of I've actually changed. 
I think in the ways that I've changed, I'm 37 now. I don't think any of it was on purpose. I don't know. I've tried to become less anxious. That certainly has not worked. (laughs) For none of us. (laughs) (laughs) I've tried, oh my God, how many of my to-do lists have included like start Pilates and I've never done Pilates. (laughs) I just... I think, yeah, you get to a point where you just have to accept who you are or like Florence, you know, throw it in the trash and start over. Um, Maybe those are our two options. I think that might be the case. We mentioned Anna Karenina before, but there's the great passage at the end of Anna Karenina that Kitty... Well, Kitty grows up. Kitty doesn't change so much. She grows up. But there's this great passage at the very end of Anna Karenina where Levin is thinking about like should he change and he's like looking at the stars and thinking about like the universe and he's basically like oh I should go tell Kitty about this and then he's basically like no she'll just understand (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like well you didn't really change dude you liked the idea of it he has all those like life-changing kind of thoughts in his head. And then he doesn't, isn't he also like short or impatient with someone right after that? I feel like, like he has this moment where he's like, Oh my God, I understand it all. And then he just kind of falls. Well, it's because it's because he goes into the house and uh, they have the baby in the house and he's annoyed about having to deal with the baby. So yeah, he really didn't change that much. Yeah. People, people don't change. It's like the fundamental, the fundamental error. You can, want to change but like you're kind of hardwired for whatever you are you know like I think one of the things that quarantine might have taught us is that if you were what you were when you were like 16 you're gonna be the same 20 years later so I don't know I think there's something to be said for changing involuntarily I think it's very hard to change yourself voluntarily But look at someone like Kitty. Like she was such an annoying little twit at the beginning of the book. You just wanted to slap her. And then, you know, whatever, she gets her heart broken. And she really becomes a much more interesting person. And she would never choose that. And she didn't say to herself, you know, I need to like, I need some more depth here. Well, right. No. And I mean, I think that the interesting thing about that is, right, she ends up going with her mother to Germany, right? Now I like that we're recounting the plot of Anna Karenina. Tolstoy doesn't need the money. I do. <laughs> um, no, but that is, she, you know, she goes there because she has to and so she changes as a result you know she meets the elderly woman in the sanatorium with her mother and kitty becomes in a weird way the other like protagonist in the second half of the book so like you can have involuntary change and you know i think in your book it's interesting how deliberative it is (laughs) yeah I don't think my book is realistic per se. <laughs> so in earlier drafts, it actually had a very campy tone, which I sort of peeled back um, over the course of many, many, many drafts. But, you know, I'm someone who actually can't, I, I can't read very like gritty thriller. Like I love Agatha Christie precisely because they're, they're called cozies, right? And 
I can't we take read. A, we take offense at that term. <laughs> really? Tell yeah. me more. I only heard this term like very recently. Well, it's 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 condescending, and so <laughs> and it has a real history in like literary theory too. You know, Bunny Wilson, Edmund Wilson, who was the he was an editor at New Republic and The New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote this series. He wrote a really famous essay called um, Who Cares Who Murdered Roger Ackroyd? And also, why do we like detective novels, basically? He just was a jerk about mysteries. And he was, of course, the most prominent literary critic in the United States in like the 1930s and 40s. Mm -hmm. And so he just was terrible about them. And it had something to do a little bit about the fact that they in that time period were largely written by women. And there's an argument to be made historically that part of the reason, and you mentioned this earlier, Ali, that one of the reasons that you read them is that they're satisfying at the end. You, you make the world whole again in them. But that doesn't make them a cozy. That makes them, like some of them are like vicious. Some of the like, Christie's, et cetera, are just terrifying actually. But they, at the end of the day, they come out where you know the solution. And so as a result, you have agency. And that's actually an interesting point for you because, you know, your protagonist does have agency, but in a very different way. But don't you think there's a difference between like an Agatha Christie novel and like, let's say like a thriller published, and I'm not actually thinking of anything real, um, like about where like a seven-year-old gets raped and murdered. Don't you think there's a categorical difference there? Or no? Um, no, because there is a child murderer in one of the most famous Agatha Christie books. And there, are, there is an Agatha Christie that we haven't gotten to yet, actually, that features a child and not even a, a super old child who's murdered, actually. So she has, she has both child murderers and children murdered. The difference is tone. Um, right. I think that... Oh, yes, there's... And I wonder... Sorry, you go ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, well, I, we want to hear from you. Everyone's tired of hearing from here. No, I'm interested in this. I was just going to say, I think often the difference is tone because with Christy, there's actually a great deal of understatement that happened, mm -hmm. even though she's dealing with exactly the sort of dark subject matter that, you know, at that point, often when she was writing her noir contemporaries say, which then became her kind of Patricia Highsmith or P.D. James, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, as, the, as crime fiction into the 60s and 70s became much more popular. That's also, the, those were her contemporaries. And I think that um, it's easy to sort of overlook or ignore that she's actually dealing with the same things, but in interestingly different ways and that's how she chose to deal with them. And often combining that with humor, there's a lightness mm -hmm. even in those books that features all these dark things, but that's not necessarily... Um, and I think the, the issue with the cozy term too is that there really is a literary subgenre at this point of books that are called cozies, which are extremely derivative and extremely light in tone. Um. And then I think when people then say, oh, and Christie is cozy too, it kind of lumps her into books that are derivative of her and she's doing so much more than that. So I think that's where it gets a little bit troubling or problematic, but Let's yeah. Let's just say that if there's like a teapot on your cover and a cat. Um, it features a recipe 
<laughs> oh, oh they really they have recipes oh, oh many oh the cookbook cozy crossover is the huge best i think i i am just dipping a toe into the cozy world <laughs> Let me yeah ask you, does louise penny write cozy no those- louise no louise penny i love louise penny <laughs> so no I do too. <laughs> yes and we cannot get louise penny on the podcast and it is very you've got to get penny and clinton together that's your big guess. i know i know they did the podcast together right <laughs> she so they're writing out. a book together oh yeah, yeah they are yeah that's so great <laughs> if only well what can a girl do <laughs> I was curious that you mentioned that you wrote a number of drafts of the novel. I think I read somewhere that you wrote 24 drafts. I did. I have them right here on this computer. I have them. I'm very organized. I have them all labeled. (laughs) And I think I was also reading that you, you know, you had an original outline that you also had to Mm -hmm. throw out and you kind of made references of how the book uh, had more of a camp sort of element to it at first. Mm -hmm. Just curious because I'm always curious about writing process how organic that process became after you threw out that original outline. Like, did it, did the book become something totally different? Did it go to a different place or was it more of kind of a piecemeal sort of a change? It was a very organic, instinctual process, I would say. I mean, it was such a strange process because, you know, I was learning how to write a novel, not even a novel, I was learning how to write fiction as I wrote fiction. Um, So obviously making a lot of mistakes along the way. I mean, I can't even tell you how much I threw out. Oh, God, so much. I mean, I wanted this book to be very character-driven. And I, I, when writers are like, the character told me what to do. I mean, I sort of don't hold track with that. But um, there was a certain sense of, I just really enjoyed writing the Maud Dixon character. So I wanted to keep her around. And um, when I tried to write chapters that I'd already outlined, you know, where I'd say, okay, I need to get from point A to point B. Like I need to accomplish X, Y, and Z. (laughs) That was a lot of letters. Um, I just found that the writing got really dry and it was sort of just a trudge. Whereas if I just like sort of let a conversation flow without any goals, sometimes it would just take me somewhere interesting. The most important thing to me in the book was really having like sharp dialogue because God, nothing can bring a book down, like just boring, dull, cliched dialogue. And so that was sort of how I built my characters out, I guess, through their voices. And then through that came the plot ultimately. We often talk about in Christie, I mean, cause it's, you know, we're constantly trying to solve the mystery of why Christie and kind of Christie alone of like all these writers of, you know, who are writing detective fiction continues to be as popular, if not more popular now. And it just mm-hmm. her popularity endures. And I think a large part of it is the easy readability of her books, which is such an element that's easily discounted by readers because it's easy. Right. Um, and I think a large part of that is due to her excellent dialogue. And, um, mm-hmm. There really is nothing brings a book down more than leaden dialogue and nothing kind of makes a book sparkle and makes the pages turn than dialogue that moves and moves the story along. It's, it makes me think of like the innovation in Oklahoma of the songs moving the plot forward as opposed to let's stop and then sing a song and go back to our story. I feel like the best dialogue is obviously, you know, moving the plot forward, but in thrillers, especially in mysteries, if you can do that well, I think it goes such a long way. And I felt that, you know, when Florence and Helen are talking in the beginning, sparring more toward the end, no spoilers as to how exactly that's playing out. It's a lot of fun and uh, it, it really brings it alive. 
Yeah. Well, I think before we got sidetracked by um, the great cozy debacle, <laughs> I think what I was, was going to say was that it was very important for me to have a sense of fun throughout the whole book. Not even like in opposition to boredom, but in opposition to like fear. I don't like being actually afraid when I read. And I think that keeping it fun, as I keep saying over and over and over again, makes for a good mix. And again, because we always bring it back to Christy, but that's what she does so well, which is why tonally she often wouldn't fall into or not fall into, but didn't go the same route as like a Ruth Rendell, for example, Mm -hmm. who is fantastic. And there's such a time and a place for reading a Ruth Rendell. But boy, I have not been turning to Ruth Rendell during the pandemic. That's for sure. I've been turning to Agatha Christie. And yeah, I think there's real power in that. I also just have to ask you, this is such a dorky question and it's probably a stupid question, but I'm a huge fan of a book within a book. I just love uh-huh. books within books. We actually, one of our recent interviewees was um, Anthony Horowitz, who did this twice recently in with Magpie Murders and Moonflower Murders, which I just absolutely adored. And um, you have a book within a book, a little bit. It's called Mississippi mm-hmm. Foxtrot. That is what Helen a.k.a. Maud Dixon, wrote. That's why she's a famous writer. And we get a little bit of it, which I thought was really well done. And it was very tantalizing. I'm curious, especially given that you threw out a lot of stuff as you were writing. Did you write any more of Mississippi Foxtrot? I did not. I actually (laughs) did not put any Mississippi Foxtrot into the book. And then I think it was my agent who suggested including a few snippets. And I actually found it really intimidating because I go on and on about how, you know, Maude Dixon is this genius writer and her prose just blew everyone away. And then I was like, well, I'm not that good. You know, Maude Dixon is a better writer than I am. And I really, so I tried to sort of make the tone different from the rest of the book, but it was like, someone was like, okay, so write your genius book now. And I was like, no, no, I can't write that book. I'm writing this book. <laughs> no, it, it takes such moxie, I think, to actually, it's like you're putting your money through your business, <laughs> which is why I love that you do it. I think it's like, there's like one paragraph and then maybe a sentence or two of dialogue yeah, yeah. or something, but they do and they, and they feel different. But like, I think it was a good note because you did, and you did it well. So like it, it goes <laughs> a long you. way, I think, toward just selling the concept. Well, I mean, also, I think- also we get a little snippet of a sequel. Maybe. (laughs) No, there was also a moment which is, this is a hard one to pull off, but I do love when this is done well. When I was like, could this book be the second book? You know, Maude's second novel, could this be it? And then I just, my head blew up and I put that idea aside. (laughs) (laughs) What prompted you to Morocco? Because I, I, again, we're trying to avoid spoilers, but let's just say that we end up in Morocco. I love books that take place in these like incredible settings that are very different from my own. I mean, my favorite Christie's were always the ones that took place in far-flung places. You know, someplace you just, you just sure. want to be. Yeah, I know. And Morocco is just so... It has like this air of glamour to it, right? Totally. I mean, all the... Yeah, I was torn between that and Tangier. There were a few places I was considering, like Southern Italy maybe, but... I mean, it was great because then I got to visit it for research. (laughs) Oh, I mean, hey, listen, nothing on earth would stop me right now to travel. (laughs) Like, it would just be like, it's one of the things that is so missing. (laughs) I miss it so much. Oh my gosh. My husband and I were talking, we miss being at the airport and like being delayed and killing time to get the magazine shop. (laughs) Like, I just want to do that. (laughs) I know. It's like, you never really thought 
ever that your dream would be to be delayed and be at a bad airport bar mm-hmm. getting like a gin and tonic and being like, okay, well, I guess I have to sit here for another 45 minutes and this is terrible. And now it's just like, the height oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> the height, the height of glamour. And to go to some place, like to go to like Tangiers, Allie, you're making me like, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really liked that, you know, we end up in Rabad. Again, I think it goes back to your definition. That's fun. I wanted to ask you actually a little bit just on the film, which is in the work. Mm-hmm. So Liz Hanna, who wrote the film mm-hmm. the most, is adapting yeah. your book right now. She's also set to direct it. Cannot wait mm-hmm. for that. So here's my question. Is Julia Garner going to get an early look at the script to play Florence? Because like I seriously could not help picturing her while I was reading it. Is that true? Because that's exactly who I was picturing. Okay, not really? only that. No, yeah. not only. Oh my God. Not only that, but my childhood best friend read your book the day it came out. She just like speed read it the day it came out. And she called me about it and I hadn't read it yet. And she was like, you know who the heroine is? It's that girl from Ozark. (laughs) Totally. I mean, yes. It's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, she's just got just the right like look. It's like she's really beautiful in a very weird way. And now I feel like a jerk in kind of an unusual way. I mean, she's really beautiful. And then she can do both. I mean, in Ozark, she does that like kind of seedy, tacky thing so well. I just, yeah, she's fantastic. I'm so glad that you actually were describing her because, and the way that you describe her curly blonde hair, I was just like, oh, that is Julia Garner's hair. (laughs) That is her. Yeah. But it's like the seediness, but also like that steeliness that she just like, the the shark eyes come out and you're just like, oh my God, I'm scared now. She needs to be in this movie. (laughs) If I had any say over it. (laughs) This was your first novel. If if that wasn't clear from this conversation, are you working on another one? (laughs) The the politic answer is yes. Um, (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's been so hard. You know, I just saw this Tracy Letts quote in the New York Times where they interviewed all these artists and he was just like, I haven't been able to, you know, I've got the time. I've really tried to work and I just cannot work. I have found it very, very difficult. You know, I had a baby in March, 2020. Um, I also have a toddler. So, I mean, I could point to them as the problem, you know, why not? But um I don't know. I just, my mind is very, I'm finding it very, very hard. I do. I have written a fair bit of a second book. I don't know if it will be the second book. We'll see. The Tracy Letts quote that you're referencing was brilliant because for listeners who don't know, the New York Times just ran a list of quotes from creatives about how they had been spending quar. And the Tracy Letts one was the only one that seemed honest. Everybody else seemed kind of like they were lying because the Tracy Letts one was like, yeah, no. like are you kidding like no and everybody else is like oh well I tried to learn like to knit and what and everybody's like you're a liar like I've been trying to make all of our listeners know this I've been trying to make a quilt for like four months it has not progressed very much (laughs) yeah I think I ordered knitting needles at some point and just never touched them ever (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a hard time for for creating. That's pretty intense then because your book came out in March of 2020. Uh, the book was March 2021. So it was great. We're in 2021. Oh boy. I, yeah. Okay, where are we? Yeah. Yeah, that was uh that was Um um I'm sorry. We're in April of 2021. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we hope that whenever you're able to dig into the second novel, that that... We want a sequel. Yeah, oh I mean, hey, Patricia Highsmith did like four... I know, but novels. didn't she do them? She did the other ones much later, I think. Much later. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to write the mod sequel when I'm like 70. <laughs> <laughs> Totally, totally fine. Just write write us something else soon. Okay, I will do my very best. (laughs) Thank you so much, Allie, for uh, sitting down with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you so much to Allie for sitting down with us over Zoom during this pandemic. It's nice that we can provide a little bit of press slash publicity slash PR to these authors who have their books coming out at such a trying time. You know, we have every intention of keeping this up even when we are not locked down, but I think it's kind of a nice thing that we started doing more of these during the lockdown. It might be the only positive development to come out of it on a personal level that I can think of at the moment. And I know that a lot of you guys listening read a lot of contemporary mystery too. And I think that the important thing and part of what we talk about consistently on the podcast is, you know, when we talk about stuck in its time, we're only talking about that because we really believe that the Christie novels are relevant today. And I think it's really helpful to have contemporary crime writers on talking about that relevance as well. It rounds out, I think, the context for that whole issue in a positive way. I know there are, there are many of you that sometimes get a little irked by our depictions stuck in their time conversations, but we think they're important and we will continue having those conversations, especially in each novel episode. But this is a way, I think, of continuing that conversation because these are the people who you know think about those issues deeply and do exist in our world right now. And even though we call these special episodes, I think this is actually becoming a core part of what we do on the All About Agatha podcast. I, I completely agree, and we're going to continue it going forward because I think it's important to keep up the history and the narrative of what the mystery novel means to people and what it means to us. I think that's a lovely way of ending our lovely interview with Alexandra Andrews. So we hope you enjoyed that. For our next episode, we are covering a Miss Marple novel, a Caribbean mystery is upon us. I'm so excited. And in the meantime, if you would like to talk to us about who is Maud Dixon or Miss Marple or anything in between, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Send us an email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on our Patreon site, www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We just dropped an episode about The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay, speaking of... 
other mystery authors. Very exciting. Very exciting. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, we are at All About the Dame. Catherine is at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. And if you haven't yet done so, please take a moment to give us a rating and or a review. It really helps us out and we appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.